Uh, I'm thankful Tom was gracious enough to graft me right into this series on Matthew. I've been um, convicted and encouraged each week as we've been going through what discipleship is and looking at the love of Christ that he demonstrates clearly in these chapters. Uh, and so I've, I've loved this series. And I'm happy um, to be able to jump into Matthew 11 with you this morning. Matthew 11 Verse 1 says, uh, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And this verse uh, serves as a transition marker in Matthew. There are, there are five places in Matthew's gospel, something like this verse, something to the effect of when Jesus had finished these sayings. And those comments are, are pointers in Matthew's gospel. Uh, to a, a pivot, a, a scene change, so to speak. So at the end of chapter 7, uh, as the Sermon on the Mount is wrapping up, Matthew says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, and then Matthew 8 through 10 goes on to present a new phase in the ministry of Jesus. So here also, at the beginning of chapter 11, we have a scene change. Jesus has finished teaching about what discipleship is, and he has commissioned the disciples to go out in groups of two, Uh, to do the very thing that he himself now goes out alone to do, uh, to preach and teach, expecting opposition. So chapter 11 is like a playbill when you go to the opera or uh, some kind of live theater performance. You receive a program that has different details about uh, the performance, providing background information on the characters and how they relate to the plot line of the story. This chapter is kind of like that. It provides background information on some of the key characters of Matthew's gospel. Uh, Of course, John the Baptist has shown up already, and then Jesus, who's been present the entire time. So Matthew 11 pauses to address their identity. So we learn more details about three parts in the story. Who is Jesus? Who is John? And who is this generation that they are addressing? So look at verse 3. John sends uh, some of his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one? So he's curious about the identity of Jesus. And then look at verse 7, where Jesus turns to the crowds and says to them, What did you go out to see? He's asking them what they understood John the Baptist's identity to be. And then in verse 16, Jesus says, But to what shall I compare this generation? And then he describes them. So who is Jesus, who is John, and who is this generation? Keep an eye out for these three parts as I read through um, chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, and we'll read through verse 24. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Well, back to our first question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So as this chapter opens up, John the Baptist has been imprisoned, and he's, he's in prison awaiting death. But as he's there, he hears about all these things that Jesus has been doing, and so he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus this key question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? But why does John even ask this question? It's surprising that he would ask this because remember, John is, as we've already learned in Matthew's gospel, the one who baptized Jesus. He saw the dove descend and he heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And John himself pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So at one point, John was convinced, but now John is confused. Why is that? Well, notice that while Jesus is doing all these amazing things, John was not with him. John is in prison. And that must have been confusing because it didn't accord with John's understanding of how the kingdom of God was supposed to happen. Do you ever find that your ideas of what should happen next don't quite line up with what God has planned, what you think you know to be best doesn't quite line up with what God knows to be best? Well, this seems to be the kind of situation that John is in. You can see the the wheels in his head turning uh, because what he has thought should happen has not happened. And he's wondering, did I miss something? 
See, it's not what Jesus has done that confuses John, but rather what Jesus has not done that confuses him. Jesus hasn't obliterated the opposition and established his final blessing for his followers. Back in chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, John had been preaching and he had prophesied that Jesus was coming with a winnowing fork in his hand. He was really just reiterating the Old Testament. That the Messiah would come and, as John says, he would gather all the chaff. He would collect all of his enemies and bring them into the barn and they would be burned with unquenchable fire. John had said, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Judgment is at hand. John knew the saving promises of God. He knew that God had promised to wipe out his opposition and establish blessing for his followers. But John is in prison. And this doesn't quite line up with what he's understood the kingdom to be. So he doubts. And he sends his followers to Jesus to double-check the details, to make sure he hasn't missed something. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. By the way, you may have noticed Jesus rarely gives yes or no answers. Why is that? Why does Jesus rarely give yes or no answers? Think of your own life. Doesn't it seem like many times God leaves unanswered questions about the details of your life? Why does this or that trial occur? What are, you, what are you to learn from this circumstance? We shouldn't be quick to um, answer these questions or to presume the no, to know the mind of God in unanswered matters. God leaves questions unanswered often to induce faith. But look at the way that Jesus does respond here. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And this string of events, all directed towards outcasts, uh, is really in fulfillment, direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, especially from the book of Isaiah. So in the midst of John's doubts, Jesus directs his attention to the promises of God in the Word of God and the certainty that they will be fulfilled. This is how we should always respond to doubt, directing our attention again to the promises of God in the Word of God. These lines that Jesus gives here about the blind receiving their sight and the lame walking and the lepers being cleansed are direct fulfillment of God's promises in Isaiah. You can connect the lines from these promises back to the places they were prophesied uh, years earlier. And then Jesus adds to all this in verse 6, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Another beatitude trailing along behind the others uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. In the midst of opposition... Uh, John is second-guessing his allegiance to Jesus. He's second-guessing whether he's hitched his wagon to the right train. You see, Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that many were expecting. He's not the kind of king that many wanted. The Jews were reading Isaiah's prophecy, and they saw the Messiah figure and the servant of Isaiah's prophecy as two different people. They didn't see that the coming king would be the servant, the one who associates with lepers and the unclean and outcasts. Jesus didn't come to affirm the power structures of Judaism. He didn't sit in the halls of human power 
Rather, he comes and associates with the outcast. He's the kind of king that you might be offended by. An outcast king. Eventually, a naked king. A nothing king. And he doesn't come to make us feel good about ourselves despite our sinful nature. He comes to transform our nature. He makes the lame walk and the blind see. And he gives life to those who are dead. All of us are in verses 4 and 5. We are the lifeless, the destitute, the lame, the, the leper dirty with sin. That's us. And who is it that Jesus heals and restores? Those who know themselves to be lowly. Those who know their need of Him. As the song we just sang says, all the fitness He requires is that you feel your need of Him. Christians should be known for having no pretenses. We don't have it all together. And we should be known as people who are eminently humble with no pretense. Sadly, we often feel pressure. This pressure that we're supposed to be doing better off than our unbelieving neighbors. Or we feel pressure to be doing just fine relative to other Christians in the community of faith. And this kind of pressure breeds a certain dishonesty that leads to hypocrisy and pretense. We need to train our hearts towards humility. To train our hearts to admit our need and our lowliness and our brokenness. Well, the, the rejection that Jesus experienced, the people following away, offended by the idea of a nothing king who associates with outcasts, this all continues until they eventually kill Christ. But for those um, who are not offended by him, who remain uh, in their allegiance towards Christ, his death brings life. What is your allegiance to Christ worth? You follow Jesus for who he is or for what he gives. You may have Jesus' stuff, but what if you didn't? What, if what is your allegiance to Christ worth? The gain of allegiance, as Jesus says here, is blessedness, eternal happiness. Your only blessedness and hope of eternal happiness is solidarity with the ignominy and the rejection that Christ experienced. Where are you slighted? Where do you endure um, rejection or being without honor merely for mentioning that you go to church or something like this? Well, consider that your eternal happiness, in a sense, hangs on those moments, depends on your allegiance to Christ. And sometimes it's those little comments that God uses for his purposes. These are the easiest ways that we can demonstrate allegiance to Christ, the, the easiest inroads, the, the baby steps, so to speak, in demonstrating allegiance to Christ is making these simple claims of allegiance. I'm a Christian. You know, in those simple words, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Well, Jesus comes as a king for the needy, and those who desire to be part of his kingdom pledge their allegiance to him. And, and notice how this pledge of allegiance to Christ produces a certain kind of boldness that's not offended. Believing in Jesus produces a certain quality of confidence. And self-confidence wouldn't quite be the right term for it. It really has very little to do with self. And arrogance certainly wouldn't be, be it. 
but believers should be of all people most humble. That's what these verses are about. It's not defensiveness either, as if we have to prove ourselves or make a case for Jesus. We aren't in search of affirmation. Jesus doesn't need affirmation. No, the the confidence produced by believing in Jesus is an undeterred hope toward him. A confidence in the unshakable reign of God. This is the confidence that is not offended by him. A, A confidence towards God. As you interact with people around you and with the culture around you, the the ideas that are swirling all about us, do you ever find yourself retreating into self-defensiveness over your belief in Jesus or indignation when someone opposes your belief? Do you ever find yourself arrogantly assertive or condescending to people around you or to broken elements of society, implicitly placing yourself on a higher plane simply because of your belief? Well, these are the wrong kinds of confidence with too much self-interest wrapped up in them. Christianity is not a protection mechanism. It's a change agent that happily enters the fray and produces grace in the most unlikely places. Jesus preaches the gospel to the outcast, to the poor. He is a king for the humble. Well, the second character on the playbill is John the Baptist. Who is John? And you see this in verses 7 through 15. In verse 7, as John's disciples have asked Jesus this question about his identity, they then go away. Jesus turns to the crowds and began to speak to them concerning John. And he asked them this concerning, uh, this recurring question, almost interrogation style, who did you go out into the wilderness to see? The question in view is, is John's identity. Who is John the Baptist? And Jesus suggests a couple possibilities in answer to that question. He says, perhaps a reed shaken by the wind. This is a figure of speech that Jesus uses here to ask, was John an unstable disciple who followed Jesus until the slightest breeze of opposition blows against him and then he topples over like a, like a fragile blade of grass that bends in the wind? And the implied answer is no. John the Baptist was courageous in proclaiming the kingdom and calling for repentance and even condemning Herod's marriage, which is the very thing that landed him in prison where he's at right now. So he's not a reed shaken by the wind, but perhaps a man dressed in soft clothing. Well, also here, the obvious answer is no. John has never worn designer robes and the luxury pieces of kings. In fact, he's in the prison of the very one who wears such clothes, while John himself only wears camel's hair. Camel's hair. Well, is he a prophet then? And to this, Jesus says, yes, this is the correct answer, and even more than a prophet. And then Jesus quotes Malachi. Malachi was the final prophetic voice of the Old Testament, the final prophet before Jesus comes on the scene. And Malachi points to another prophet who would come alongside Jesus, preparing the way before him, uh, for him. Uh, so in verse 10, Jesus quotes Malachi where he had said, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you, implying that this prophet is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the forerunner who would prepare the way for the Messiah. 
Now, don't feel bad if you're scratching your head at verses 11 through 15. These verses are hard to understand. It's hard to discern exactly what Jesus is saying in these verses. But what he seems to be doing is this. He's using John the Baptist, this forerunner. Um, He's using John the Baptist to explain two items about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uses John to explain the kingdom of heaven. And there are two things he says about the kingdom of heaven. First, he talks about the measure of greatness in the kingdom. See there in uh, verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, the questions in my mind about those verses are, what was John's greatness? What was John's greatness? And then, who is the least in the kingdom of heaven? Who is that? And then, how is it that that person, the least in the kingdom of heaven, how is it that that person is greater than John the Baptist? So, what was John's greatness? Well, Jesus is saying that John the Baptist was the greatest among men because he sits in a privileged position on the salvation timeline. He gets to announce the coming Messiah. He's greater than all the other prophets, and even above everyone born of women, which is pretty much everybody, he gets the best spot. This is an amazing accolade by Jesus. Think of all the people in the Old Testament that get put in the back seat by this comment. John is the greatest among all men, all people born of women. And, and, and he receives this honor from Christ because of his position on the timeline. He gets to announce the Messiah's coming. And I think Jesus says he's the greatest because he performs this role flawlessly. He points to Christ and then as Christ steps on the stage, Christ, uh, John happily recedes into the background. He must increase and I must decrease, John says. He is content to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And he's a model for, this, that for us in this. And Jesus says he's the greatest among men. But Jesus says then, despite John's greatness among men, even the lowest person in the economy of the kingdom of heaven will have greater privilege than what John had as the forerunner. Your privilege in the kingdom of heaven is communion with Christ. John was a forerunner. For those in the kingdom of heaven, you have union with Christ. And this is the greatness that Jesus speaks of. So he's comparing two different types of greatness. John had a position of greatness among men. Then he compares that greatness to greatness in the kingdom of heaven, which is the privilege of sharing the family table with the Father, God, and the Son, Christ. So he says John's greatness is is this greatness, uh, his, his privilege to announce the Messiah. Well, who is the least in the kingdom of heaven? Who is that? Well, almost every time that Jesus describes true greatness and what true greatness is, he links it with humility. Think of all the things that Jesus says about the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. 
In the chapters that we've been studying more recently, it's always the outcast women, the sick and the children who get the gospel breakthroughs, who receive Jesus' attention. They're the ones who are healed and forgiven. So the least in the kingdom of heaven, this is the one who enters by humility. The one who recognizes their brokenness and their need of Christ. The least in the kingdom of heaven is the humble, the poor in spirit. So Jesus explains what true greatness is by using John the Baptist to explain the nature of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. But notice in verse 12, Jesus describes something else about the kingdom of heaven. He explains the mighty advance of the kingdom. So in verse 12, he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. The kingdom of heaven is moving forward mightily. Now, there's a bit of discussion about verse 12. Some have called verse 12 uh, a riddle that Jesus gives because it's, it's vague. It's almost like it intends to hide truth rather than disclose it. But some, ver- some versions, uh, perhaps the version you have on your lap or in the footnote of your Bible perhaps, uh, have a different reading. They say that the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. Others say the kingdom of heaven has been violently advancing. And the point of the passage seems to be that the kingdom of heaven is violently advancing. It's forcefully moving forward. The point of the passage seems to be that things are progressing. John has come in fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. He's the forerunner of the Messiah who would be right on his heels. And then Jesus is more than implying that he himself is that Messiah, the very one who would bring both judgment against opposition and blessing for all those who come to him. The the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Things are moving forward. In fact, that's largely what Matthew is about. Fulfillment has arrived is the theme of Matthew's gospel. He has oriented his gospel around the theme of the kingdom sweeping in with Jesus Christ who fulfills the patterns and promises of the Old Testament. So that despite Herod's attempts to imprison John and thwart the kingdom's advance, despite Israel's rejection and opposition against Jesus, the kingdom marches forward. It continues violently or forcefully moving forward. And Jesus presents the kingdom's advance as an invitation to them. See there in verse 14, he says, if you are willing to accept it. And verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, will you accept Christ and his claims and so enter the kingdom of heaven by humility and submission to his lordship, which is what John preached? Or will you reject him because you've taken offense at his humility, his offensiveness? Exception, acceptance, sorry, or rejection. This is the thematic center of the chapter. Will you accept Christ or reject him? Will you submit your arrogant claims to self-righteousness, self-rule, and self-expression and utterly renounce yourself in order to submit to Christ and so enter the kingdom of heaven? Or will you reject him? 
Well, this is the nature of Christianity, this constant moment-by-moment denial of self and submission to Christ. Actually, it's consulting our self-interest that leads to our ruin. We must renounce our self-interest. John Calvin said, consulting our self-interest is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction. So we have to renounce ourselves if we are to gain Christ. And if we don't renounce ourselves, then we lose Christ. The kingdom is marching forward. The question is, will we accept or reject? And speaking of self-interest and destruction, we have one final character sketch on the playbill. It's actually an entity. It's this generation. Who is this generation? And they are characteristically self-interested, and Jesus warns them of destruction. So who is this generation? Verses 16 through 24 describe the answer to this question. In verse 16, Jesus says, But to what shall I compare this generation? And he says, this generation is childish. It's not the childlike faith that enters the kingdom, but rather childish ignorance that neglects the kingdom. Jesus had said, if you have ears to hear, listen. And then he says that this generation is like children who don't listen. This generation is unresponsive to obvious cues, like children outdoors playing together and someone starts a a lively tune on the flute, and the children should dance, but they don't. Or someone sings a funeral song as as a funeral procession solemnly marches by, and the children don't mourn. They're oblivious to the the signals and the signs of what's going on. Parents, maybe you're familiar with this. Have you ever had this uh, moment with one of your children where you carefully, lovingly, in detail, explain to them how they can succeed in some particular matter or how enjoyable it is just to be mature? And they look at you with a blank stare. And in response for all your efforts at leading them, they give nothing as Jesus says of this generation, ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing and never understanding. They're childish in their ignorance. And then in verses 20 through 24, the rebuke is heightened. Not only are they like oblivious children, ignorant of the substance of life, but even worse, Jesus says, they are willfully rejecting him. Not mere ignorance, but willful rejection. They have seen his works, and they say, no thanks. So in verse 20, Jesus begins to denounce the cities where he has performed most of his miracles. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. If Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom had seen the works that you have, they would have repented, and Sodom would still be here today, having avoided the judgment of God. So Jesus brings this warning of coming judgment. Like Jonah preaches doom against Nineveh, Jesus pronounces the fate of those who turn away from him. But a question for you, is Jesus just expressing frustration against these cities? Is this just an outburst of anger, a tantrum that they have dishonored him in some way? Or does Jesus have a larger purpose in mind, a more generous aim perhaps? Listen again to the words, Woe to you, Chorazin. Can you hear in those words a pleading? 
like how God pleads with Nineveh through Jonah, pleads for their repentance that they might avoid destruction. Serious sin demands a solemn response, like like cancer requires aggressive treatment. And the Pharisees suffer from the cancer of hypocrisy. And Jesus says there is a remedy for this disease. This is a merciful call to repentance. This isn't an outburst of anger. This is an outpouring of mercy. Jesus inviting them to repent of their sin and turn to him. Capernaum needed to associate with the lame, the leper, and the poor of verses 4 and 5. The Pharisees needed to look at the lame and link arms with them. Jesus refuses and rebukes the arrogant and highlights how his compassion is elicited by humility. You want to gain God's favor? Bow down to him. Admit that you need him. And your areas of weakness or vulnerability... Stop trying to reform those yourself and deal with them by your own effort. Let him deal with them. Let him reform and transform. This this is what Capernaum needed, to admit that their religious activity could never gloss over their brokenness. They needed Christ. They should have known this. These people have greater access. They're closer to the truth. And so Jesus says they bear greater responsibility. This is what he means when he says, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Those who hear less gospel will have less judgment. Every time someone hears the gospel, if they reject it, the wrath of God against that person increases. Well, this should motivate us in our prayers each time that we share the gospel. Each time that we disclose more about Jesus Christ and the gospel with somebody, the wrath of God against that person increases if they continue to refuse him. We should be all the more prayerful then for those we tell of Jesus, that God would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, and humility to receive what arrogant hearts tend to reject. So this thought should guide our prayers. And we should recognize that God values humility over morality. You know, we often prefer morality over belief. We'd rather live in an unbelieving society than an immoral one. We'd take an unbelieving religious person over an immoral one. And in this, we are no different than the Pharisees. We misunderstand Jesus no less than the Pharisees did. Jesus does not prefer morality over humility. Of course, the two don't need to be separated. They should go together. Humility and morality should be coupled. But Jesus always prefers humility. To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of lambs. Who is it that Jesus heals? The hyper-religious Capernaum? No. He preaches to the poor to the outsider, the the lepers who were outside the gates, and the poor and blind who sit at the doors of the city, the people outside, the people who know they need him. So chapter 11, as well as chapters 12 and 13, are about the identity of Christ and, and his kingdom. And as people encounter Christ, 
either of these responses to him, either accepting him as Lord or rejecting him. And Jesus makes clear the consequence of this decision. As we encounter this chapter, it presents the momentous decision of accepting or rejecting Jesus. Will you be offended by him and thus fall away? Or do you have ears to hear and eyes to see the ways that he's working and thus you follow him? And because we're here in church this morning, I can guess that you're thinking, well, that question doesn't apply to me. I'm a Christian. I've already chosen Jesus. That's why I'm here thinking about the Bible this morning. This passage is hardly applicable. I've chosen Jesus. But Christianity, being a follower of Christ, is not about having chosen Jesus. It's about choosing Jesus repeatedly and continually. And not choosing him like a flavor of ice cream. I prefer this one over that one today. But rather choosing him as in accepting as a fact that he is the Lord of the universe. Meaning that your constant moment by moment obedience is due to him. Andy Davis has called it an infinite journey. This unending process of learning to submit to Christ in all the details of our lives. It's an infinite journey. We are always in the process of choosing Jesus. See, what you and I both know is that while we may have chosen Jesus, we habitually renege on that offer in the way that we live. Christ calibrates our course in one direction, and we choose a different way. As I speak, you can likely catalog in your own mind certain areas of your life that are characteristically not submitted to Christ, where you practically or functionally reject him as Lord. He says, speak this way, and you speak another. He says, you see the love and the patience that I demonstrate to these people in these chapters of Matthew that we've been going through? Love your wife that way. And you say, no, it's too hard. I've tried too hard too long. He says, guard your eyes and don't lust in your heart after other women. What do you say to him on that point, that the command is unfair? He says, don't live in anxiety about the details of your life. Rather, seek me in my kingdom and let all those things fade into the background. What do you say to him about this? That's not how the Father has wired me? Do you see, in all of these things, we have this constant decision of accepting or rejecting Christ. I know many of these things are are difficult to put to death and submit to Christ. They're embedded in us in various ways, but we need to come to think of our life, our lives, as a series of propositions. The question being posed to us over and over again, Christ is Lord, will you accept or reject him? Christ is Lord, will you accept or reject him? In this decision, and this one, and this one, Christ is Lord. Do you accept or reject him in responding to this decision? John Calvin speaks of the way that Matthew addresses the kingdom of heaven. He describes the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel as as being the reality that God has gathered to himself a people sadly scattered that he might reign in the midst of them. 
And indeed, he has erected his throne for the express purpose of bestowing on all his people perfect happiness. Yet, let us remember that we must be subject to God in order that we may be exalted by him. God has exalted his throne in our midst to deliver happiness as we submit ourselves to him, as we constantly yield our lives to him in all the daily matters that we have before us. This subjection to God, that he reigns over us and that we bow down to him, that's not just how we get through the gate of the kingdom. That's how citizens within the city walls of the kingdom live, by bowing down to Christ and remaining in that position. We prove that God is actually a king, not by offering some well-reasoned set of uh, apologetic principles or arguments for his existence, but rather we prove he's a king by bowing down to him and staying there. This is what this passage calls us to. Accepting Christ. Submitting to him by acknowledging that we are in desperate need. And then living in that way in all of the decisions and activities of our lives. In light of all this then, let's humble ourselves before God acknowledging our sin and seeking his forgiveness through Christ and consecrating ourselves again this morning to yield our most treasured independence to him. Let's pray together and ask that God would be gracious in bringing these things to pass in our lives, bringing this humility about in our lives. This this song we sang said, this the Spirit gives to know our need of him It's a gift of the Spirit. So let's bow and ask him for that gift. Father, we ask that you would give us honesty in our hearts to admit our brokenness, to admit what you already know to be true, that we are in desperate need of you. Pray that as we read passages like this about Christ and his compassion toward the lame, the leper, and the deaf, that we would recognize ourselves in this position. I pray that we would all, all be um, grateful, and all the more so in light of this recognition. We pray that we would feel the gratitude and joy in our hearts this morning that a leper who has been cleansed should feel. Lord, we would count you gracious and consider you extremely compassionate if you would bring this about in our hearts this morning.